But here in 1 Corinthians 16, Paul's coming to the end, of course, of First uh, Corinthians, and the, the art, I suppose, of, of reading Paul uh, helpfully and profitably is to, is to try to get some handle on what was actually going on with him out there and in his life in the first century in the uh, Mediterranean world, and to extract from that principles which are relevant for us today. And uh, that's uh, what we're going to try to do with this, uh, this brief chapter as, as we go through it. When I was a, a child, I can remember maps of Paul's missionary journeys and joining up the dots. And I had, I suppose, from somewhere or other, the idea that kind of God told him to do this. He, he went to one place, then he got moved on somewhere else, and it all ended up a nice, neat red line on the map that went round in some kind of circle and came back to Jerusalem. But the implication of Acts and of the letters are that it was not felt like that from Paul's perspective. Now, let's look at verse 12 as touching our brother Apollos. I greatly desired him to come unto you with the brethren. Now I'm reading uh, from the... um, from the, uh, from the RV margin but it was not God's will it was not God's will that he should come so Paul did not know God's will to the end he was trying to make his plans as best he could and he asked Apollos to come to him and yet he said well that was not God's will to come so he didn't understand God's will to the end and even the Lord Jesus in Gethsemane I think was somewhat like that Um, not my will, but your will be done. And I think it would be fair to say that the will of the Lord Jesus at that time was to not actually die on the cross. And the point's been made when he says, my God, my God, how have you forsaken me? Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, that that sabachthani is the word that's used um, in the Septuagint about the entangling of the ram in the thicket. It's as if Jesus had thought that he was Isaac in that type and that there would be some deliverance at the end, at the very last minute, but then he realized that, well, I am actually the ram that is sabachthaned, as it were, that, that is entangled in the, in the thicket. And so this is our struggle, isn't it? That we do not know God's will to the end. And yet we put our hands into God's and are willing to be led. And really it's a good thing that we don't know it to the end. Because there is always therefore that sense of journey, that sense of travelling. So then he asked Apollos to come and do something which it turned out was actually not God's will. And reading through a little bit more carefully this chapter, you see a number of indications just in this chapter that he really didn't know for sure his travel plans. Let's look at verse 6. It may be that I will abide with you. It might be. He didn't know. Maybe I'll spend the winter in Corinth. It may be that I shall abide the RV or even winter, that you may set me forward on my journey, whithersoever I go. Again, it seems he was not completely clear where he might be going after Corinth, if he were to stay there. And uh, verse 11, again uh, in the RV, let, talks about Timothy, Let no man therefore despise him, but set him forward on his journey in peace, that he may come unto me, for I expect him 
with the brethren. I'm expecting him to come. I'm almost hoping that he's going to come. I think that's the, the real idea there. But he wasn't completely sure if Timothy was, was going to make it. And of course, verse 7, uh, I don't wish to see you now, by the way, sort of en route, but I hope to tarry a while with you. I'm reading from the RV uh, today. Um, but I hope to tarry a while with you, if the Lord permits. There's all these elements of uncertainty. And yet, he had said when he was on his journey up to Jerusalem that he was bound in the Spirit to go up to Jerusalem. And yet the Holy Spirit witnessed against him in every city that there was going to be imprisonment and suffering waiting for him. And that's why the disciples begged him not to go up uh, to Jerusalem to, to all that uh, trouble that was, the Holy Spirit said was going to be uh, awaiting him there. So, what do we do? Life is not that simple as if God just gives us a set of commands every day, you've got to go out and fulfill them. Um, it's just not that simple. It is left to some degree in our hands. And there can be different possible futures, different possibilities open before us. Very often in the, the questions and the decisions that we might agonize over, you come to the conclusion that it's not actually a case of sin or righteousness, of black or white, of right or wrong. I hope we'd all choose the right way. Uh, but it's, it's more a question of you can do it this way, or you can do it that way. And it's all down to motive. And so, I think when we're first baptized, we have a lot of agonies about, should I do this, should I do that? And I think as we mature in Christ, we come to understand that it's, it's not so much a question of, should I do this or that? It's more a question of, what are my motives? And I think God's purpose and plan with each of us is to that degree open-ended. And yet, of course, that is not to say that uh, everything is sort of vague and an eternal, endless shade of grey. And I'd like to, in that context, uh, have a look at verse 9. He says, I'm going to stay at Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great door, and very effective, has been opened unto me, and there are many adversaries. Now, I've talked elsewhere about how According to my surely very limited analysis, Paul is alluding to the Gospels about once every three verses. And if you want the list uh, and the whole uh, caboose about that, you, you can see it in, in my book about Paul and Peter. My point is that all the time Paul was reasoning and talking consciously and unconsciously, very, very influenced by, by the Lord Jesus and, and his words and his example, his parables, his life, uh, his teaching in every way. Now, when he talks about doors being opened, this is surely alluding to what the Lord Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, it's his great manifesto, really, of the, uh, the life in Christ, that if we knock, the door will be opened. And the knocking is, of course, prayer. So then, he says, a great door has been opened unto me. Opened unto me implies he had knocked. He had asked for the door to be opened, and wow, it's open. And so, I think, in the light of all his allusions that he's making to the gospel so constantly, I think that really, the implication is, I prayed, I knocked, and the door has been opened unto me. 
And yet the idea of opening of doors is very much used uh, by Paul, well, I say very much, in at least two places. It's used about preaching the gospel, the opportunity to preach the gospel. And just turning over a page in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 12, he says, When I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, a door was opened unto me of the Lord. So he went there to preach, specifically to preach, and the Lord opened a door so that he could. In Acts 14.27, you've got uh, a, a similar usage of, uh, of this, let's say, metaphor. Acts 14.27, they rehearsed all the things that God had done with them and how that he had opened a door of faith unto the Gentiles. The opening of a door to the Gentiles clearly means he had enabled their response to the gospel. So then, Paul had prayed that he would have the opportunity to preach, and the Lord God had opened that to him. Uh, but he still had to do his part. He says, I've got to stay a bit longer at Ephesus, because there's this great open door that's opened unto me, because he wanted the door opened, but there's a lot of adversaries, there's a lot of opposition. And uh, I think, incidentally, that that's what he alludes to when he writes to the Ephesians, and he talks to the Ephesians about how we wrestle against all the cunning plans of the devil, of the Satans, of, of the adversary. And he, he talks about um, how we, we wrestle not only against flesh and blood, but against, uh, against individual people, but against all kinds of uh, legal oppositions to us. This is Ephesians 6, verse 12. Uh, we have to fight with all the armor of God against all the cunning plans of the devil, against flesh and blood, against principalities and powers, against world rulers of this darkness, spiritual wickedness in, in high places, etc. Now, that's what he's referring to here when he says, I'm preaching the gospel in Ephesus, but there are many adversaries. And he needed time. Now, the lesson that we can extract from that, we who do not live, I assume, in Ephesus, is that we also should be praying that we have open doors before us to preach the gospel. We should be praying for meetings with people. And we tend to lament that uh, nobody's interested. But, I mean, do you pray? I, I can say that I try to pray every day that God will give me meetings with people, in whatever form. These days it can be virtual meetings online, um, or just meetings with people. And what I suggest you do, and uh, I'm not always the greatest example of what I, what I preach, but I can say I, I, I have done this uh, effectively, and that is to focus on a certain person, and to pray for that person, and keep on praying for that person. Uh, that they will accept the gospel. And of course, like he had to do his bit, he had to stay a bit longer in Ephesus because of all these adversaries, these Satans that were against him. So we also have to do our human bit. I, I think of one sister who, when I first met her, I, she just seemed exactly not the type for the gospel. But I, in the course of uh, business dealing with her, I, I gave her a Bible basics. And um, she happened to comment that she'd read it uh, when I met her a couple of months later, and that quite just piqued my interest, because I, 
didn't think she'd be interested at all. And I kept praying for her, and Cindy kept praying for her, and eventually she ended up being baptized and has brought many others to the Lord. And she was uh, you know, a hard-headed business kind of person who you would not have really thought, uh, humanly speaking, would have been interested in, in the gospel at all. I'm praying at the moment for a young guy called Adrian. And you can pray for him as well. Um, but my, I just met this guy. He's the uh, grandson of somebody who's been baptized. And I met him. And I just was struck with uh, how he's uh, an intense 13-year-old who's looking, it seems to me, for God. And he doesn't want to go the way of the world. But he doesn't really at the moment want to go the way of religion. And in that sort of uh, teenage, adolescent sort of way, he, he wants to uh, be his own person. But he wants to be it with God. And I, I just am praying for that guy. And um, he's into chess. And as I'm uh, saying this, I have uh, just come in from seeing if I could get him a, a second-hand chess computer. Because he doesn't have very much money and... Uh, I thought he'd like that. So I'm trying to do my little bit, which is like Paul staying a bit longer at Ephesus to fight off, fight through all these adversaries, uh, to use the door God had opened. Now, you don't have to pray for Adrian, but there are people in your life who you can identify, who you may have met in passing, and pray for those people, and give them a book, a tract, or something or other. Get the, the courage up to, uh, to broach the, uh, the issue of, of Jesus with those people. And I think we should be doing this all the time, identifying people and focusing on them in prayer. And uh, it's not easy, and Paul in fact writes to um, some of uh, the uh, early ecclesias and says, please pray for me that I might make the gospel known as I ought to. So he actually prays for people to pray for him. He asks people to pray for him that he might actually preach more effectively. And we might tend to think that Paul was totally... Uh, unashamed of the gospel, etc. But even he needed others to pray for him that he would, as he says, uh, witness as I ought to. And we can certainly do that. So do each other. Hey, can you pray for me? That I might preach more as I ought to? That I might put a word in for the Lord when I ought to? And so he wanted a, a door to be opened. He asked, he sought, he knocked. And it was opened. And so, when he uh, has the vision in Acts 20 of the man of Macedonia, uh, saying, come over and help us, I think that that was, in a sense, in response to his prayer for a door to be opened. That's the way I would put the, uh, the whole thing, thing together. And so, if Paul was like this, how much more should, should we be? Now, there's another little thing that I'd like to uh, talk about in verse 13. Because in all our spiritual struggles, be it shyness to preach the gospel, be it struggle with uh, temptation, or, or be it uh, feeling that the, the spiritual odds against us are simply overpowering, he says in verse 13, Watch, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men, be strong. And it's kind of uh, a rallying call to troops. And he's quoting right out of the Septuagint there from uh, 1 Samuel 4, verse 9. 
let's just go over that and, uh, and have a look uh, at the context a little bit, thinking why would he quote a relatively obscure Old Testament passage? This is when the Philistines are fighting Israel. And the Philistines are uh, terrified when they hear that the Ark of God is now in the camp. And they, uh, they say, 1 Samuel 4 verse 7, they were terribly afraid. They said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe unto us, for there has not been such a thing heretofore. Woe unto us. Who shall deliver us out of the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods that smote the Egyptians with all manner of plagues in the wilderness. Be strong and quit yourselves like men, O ye Philistines, that you be not servants unto the Hebrews. Quit yourselves like men and fight. And the Philistines fought and Israel was smitten. Point is, those Philistines thought, look, we're, we're really on our last stand here. We're now up against odds which are too great for us. We, we've got to fight the God of Israel. And his ark is there in the camp with these guys, and we're fighting them. We don't have a chance. We haven't got a chance. And yet they rallied themselves, and they said, no, we will fight to the end. And amazingly enough, from their point of view, they won. Because, as we know from the rest of the story there, um, in First Samuel 4, Israel had the completely wrong attitude to the, uh, to the ark, God was not pleased with them because of the abuses of Eli and Hophni and Phinehas, and so he gave the Philistines victory. Now, Paul quotes that, and it obviously uh, meant something to him, and I think what he's saying is, look, even though it seems hopeless, it seems in the spiritual struggle as if this is impassable, you can win, because no matter how humanly speaking it seems it's impossible. God, if he wishes, will fight with you. And he says, and do all that you do, verse 14, in love. In all that struggle, do it in love. And I think there's a purposeful juxtaposition of ideas there. And verse 13 is military language, very sort of male kind of oriented, quit you like men, fight like men. And then 14, and do everything in love. And so this, I think, is what he had in mind, not of course physical fighting and stuff like that uh, but he's saying that spirit should be there in you, in whatever struggles you think you have, and just flicking back through First Corinthians 15 I mean it was a pretty hopeless situation that some of them didn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, nor of themselves uh, they uh, were getting drunk on the wine or the breaking of bread they were worshipping idols it seems right within the ecclesia there was somebody called a pornos, a, a male prostitute, it seems, openly operating within the ecclesia. It was a pretty awful situation. And yet he's saying, look, victory is possible. Even now, victory is absolutely possible. And I love the way that despite all the things that were going on in Corinth, Paul is so positive about them. You know, he doesn't say... Right, you know, that's the end of it, guys. If you don't believe that Christ rose from the dead, if you don't uh, believe that you yourselves are going to be resurrected when Jesus comes back, if you carry on in this immoral way that you do, you simply don't get it. I'm sorry, I'm out of here. His patience and his positivity with them is amazing. 
you know, he's, I think the last verse is so significant. Verse 24, my love is with you all in Christ. Now, that's the significance of being baptized into Christ. Because he recognized they'd all been baptized properly into Christ, he says, because you're in Christ, my love is with you all. So, once someone is baptized into Christ, because we can't judge in the sense of condemning, we can never really have the attitude, they will not be in the kingdom. They are no longer in Christ. Sometimes you hear the phrase, our former brother. Well, no one is in fact a former brother. If someone is baptized into Christ, once a, a brother, always a brother. Once you start saying someone has fallen out of Christ, you are judging in exactly the sense that we are told not to. So, this, I, I think, is so relevant and right up to the minute for all of us, that the reason a lot of people stumble in their spiritual walk, or are not as switched on in their spiritual walk as they should be, is because of various issues they have with others who are within the body. And those issues sap their energy, sap terribly spirituality. And Paul is here showing us, I think, in his whole attitude to the Corinthians, look, you're in Christ, and so I accept you as that, and therefore I love you. Even though they manipulated against Paul, they didn't like him, they mocked him, they laughed at him, etc., etc. And he gives them the full status of brethren in Christ. See, in verse 3, he says, Whoever you shall approve by your letters, I will, them will I send to bring your uh, liberality, your offering, to Jerusalem. So he's giving them complete uh, power and authority. He says, you decide. When he says you decide, you, you approve some of your people to carry these uh, gifts and offerings to Jerusalem. You could think, well, who are they to decide anything? They hardly believe the gospel. They've got this stuff about Jesus didn't rise from the dead. and They didn't believe in the resurrection. They were being baptized for the dead. All sorts of madness. Plus all the immorality. Plus all the division plus, 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 all the really horrible things that you read about in Corinthians. And yet, Paul says, I trust you. Not in the sense, I suppose, ultimately he trusted them in the sense of uh, believed in their integrity, but he allows them this level of autonomy. You decide who you approve. By your letters, I will accept your decision, and I will send those people who you recommend to Jerusalem. Now, this is really a, a great example, I think. And if only we can accept this, that all those who are baptized into Christ are in Christ, and we must assume that they will be in the kingdom. A huge weight, a huge burden, really, gets lifted from us of the need that many feel and perceive, the need to judge, to condemn, the, uh, the need to separate. All that is just out the window. And all the grief that comes from that, that stymies true spirituality, that stymies uh, true creative service, is all overcome. Because it's not only that you don't have to do it, you must not do it. And so as we focus upon the Lord Jesus in his time of dying, and the, the message really of the bread and wine, the message really is that we are in his body, and we are counted as him. And that is true not only for us personally, but for everyone 
who has been baptized, as he says in chapter 12 uh, and in chapter 10, who has been baptized into that one body of Christ.